If you would, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We'll be in verses 32 through 43 uh, this morning as we continue in our series in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Uh, If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is God's word for us. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him. Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and outer, other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Give us understanding with what we have read, that we might receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. And we pray that in all things you would help us to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Did you know that since August, South Carolina has had 10 earthquakes? Did you know that there was one this morning uh, near the border with South Carolina and Georgia? It was uh, two on the scale of how they measure that. Uh, Earthquakes can cause uh, tremendous destruction and upheaval. Thankfully, in South Carolina, those are not the types of earthquakes we have experienced, though they happen more often than I knew. Uh, But they can cause a whole lot of upheaval, even at a distance from what's called the epicenter, the main place where the earthquake happens. A tremor from a large earthquake, one that, say, registers a nine on the scale of magnitude, a tremor from an earthquake that large can be felt and cause damage over 500 miles away from the epicenter. Now, why are we talking about earthquakes in South Carolina this morning? I want you to think about Jesus's resurrection kind of like a, an earthquake, but one that causes good upheaval. 
um, good constructive destruction, if you will. Uh, Jesus' resurrection is like an earthquake. At its epicenter, outside the city limits of Jerusalem on a hill, or rather in a, in a tomb borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea, uh, his resurrection there at its epicenter was a singular, unique event of incredible magnitude, with incredible force and incredible power, that yet has had an impact far beyond that unique event in space and time in Jerusalem. It has continued to have an impact throughout geography, throughout the years. It happened to Jesus once for all, a unique historical event, and yet it has had incredible power uh, even in our lives today uh, as we seek to follow Jesus by faith. Part of what we're seeing as we continue through the book of Acts is what one writer calls the tremors of resurrection upheaval, using this imagery of an earthquake. As the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem and then to Judea, the broader region around Jerusalem, and even into Samaria, north of Judea, and then eventually to the ends of the earth, as the gospel spreads, Jesus is at work by his resurrection power bringing what we might call life-giving upheaval to our lives as he pushes back against sin and against the curse of sin. Or to put it another way, what we're seeing as we work through the book of Acts, these unfolding narratives of God's work in the world, what we're seeing is the kingdom of God advancing against the kingdom of Satan, both through the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus and the embodiment of that resurrection power in our very lives. Let's notice first the context of this passage that we've read. You may recall a few weeks ago, we read the story of Saul and his wonderful conversion on the road to Damascus. This great enemy of the church had been converted and transformed uh, by Jesus. He met Jesus and everything changed. That change brought about peace. Uh, where there had been persecution, there was peace, and the church began to multiply, continue to expand and grow in that context. And the gospel continues to spread, progress outward geographically. And, and now we see Peter beginning to play a role, a more prominent role in that. Here we find in this passage, Peter seems to be on some sort of evangelistic tour. He's going here and there, visiting Christians, preaching the gospel, perhaps encouraging those who are uh, seeking to be faithful to him, encouraging the church as they're faithful to Jesus. He's gone out from Jerusalem in these predominantly Jewish centers in Judea, and he's, he's venturing into Gentile territory. It's kind of a mixed population there. And Luke gives us here a snapshot of Peter's tour in two cities, the city of Lydda, about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and the city of Joppa, kind of a port city on the Mediterranean coast, which you may recall from the story of Jonah. This is where Jonah runs from God at the city of Joppa. And the passage ends with Peter staying in Joppa for a season, which kind of sets the stage for this next advance of the gospel up into a town called Caesarea, where Peter will, will uh, preach to a man named Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. So squeezed in between these two kind of major events, Saul's conversion and the first Gentiles coming into the church, squeezed in there are these two 
kind of seemingly random stories of Peter going here and there, preaching the gospel, uh, healing Aeneas, raising Tabitha from the dead. They seem to be kind of random stories of healing and witness. It's almost like Luke needed a little filler. He just needed to tell us how Peter got from Jerusalem up to Caesarea, and so he grabs these two stories and puts them in there. But upon closer examination, what we see in these two stories is a demonstration of the curse-reversing power of Jesus' resurrection and the hope that that gives us as we seek to follow Christ. What does Jesus do in these stories? He heals a man broken physically by the power of the resurrection, and he raises a dead woman to life by the power of the resurrection. And in many ways, perhaps not the exact same ways, but in many ways, we need to recall that Jesus is still at work doing the same thing in our lives today. It's important for us to kind of see the bigger context of these miraculous events in the book of Acts. Namely, as we see, the world is broken by sin and we live under its curse. It's tempting sometimes to, I think, to, to read these stories in the Gospels and in the book of Acts of Jesus healing people or hear Peter and, and others going about healing people and, and kind of make the mistake of thinking that Peter is kind of like, um, you know, he's like a country doctor who travels to go see his patients in their homes. And he's just kind of traveling around, checking to see, is anybody sick? Jesus has given us some power. We can heal you. And so he shows up to Aeneas. Aeneas is bedridden. He's paralyzed, and he heals Aeneas. And it seems like he's just kind of checking on people's physical ailments and then doing what he is able to do. But when we think about it that way, we kind of miss the bigger point of Scripture. Disease, sickness, frailty, even scarcity, like only having five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish, a scarcity of food, or even a scarcity of water. All of these events in the Bible are reminding us that we live in a world that is broken by sin and that lives under the curse of sin. When God created the world, he created it good. And before sin entered into the picture, there was no disease. There was no death. There was no frailty in the sense that we connected with disease. There would not have been a scarcity of food, a scarcity of water, as we see in many places today. All of those things are the effect of sin's entrance into the world and the spread of the curse of sin all over the world. When Adam ate the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in direct disobedience to what God said, God told him, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Even though Adam and Eve were not struck dead in that moment, the Bible teaches us that death came in with the entrance of sin and spread to all men, and the world itself feels the weight of that curse. Romans 8 describes it as futility, that we live in a world under the curse, that we live in a world defined by futility. And so when we come to this story of Aeneas bedridden, eight years, he cannot walk, he's paralyzed, we're not simply to think that Peter is just showing up to do his country doctor work in a supernatural way and heal him. We're to be reminded the curse has made its way to Lydda. 
and to every part of the world. And here's a man broken by the curse of sin. And Peter's response to that is to heal him. And I want you to notice uh, the resurrection language in the way that Peter heals Aeneas in this passage. Look at verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And what happens? Immediately he rose. Now those two words, rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose, it's the same word that's used to describe Jesus's resurrection. And Luke isn't just coincidentally grabbing that word because there's no better word. He could have used some other ones. Luke is deliberately pointing us to the fact that the curse of sin is here and the resurrection power of Jesus is pushing back against the curse of sin here in Aeneas, bedridden for eight years. Notice even Peter's command to uh, to Aeneas when Jesus heals him, rise and make your bed. The very thing that represented for Aeneas the effect of sin's curse on his life, his bed, the pallet on which he lay for eight years, unable to get up and walk on his own, make it, pick it up, roll it up. You are done with it because the power of the resurrection is pushing back against the power of sin's curse physically for Aeneas in his life. Notice the same with uh, Tabitha, who's also called Dorcas. All of that just means gazelle. It doesn't sound like a beautiful name to us, but it is in its cultural context a beautiful name because a gazelle is a beautiful animal. And uh, Tabitha here is portrayed as a, a woman who is beautiful in her spiritual gifts and love. She's full of mercy and acts of charity. When she dies... All the widows gather. When Peter comes, they're, they're showing Peter all the acts of mercy that Dorcas, that Tabitha, whatever you want to call her, that she had done while she was with them. They saw in her spiritual love and spiritual beauty. Her name is a beautiful name, name even though it doesn't sound beautiful to us, maybe. But notice uh, the, the main point here. Peter arrives. He's in Lydda, which is near Joppa. Tabitha dies. They know that Peter's close by, and so they urgently call him to come, seemingly with some expectation that Peter's going to do something. I don't think they're just asking Peter to come because they want him to remember Tabitha or just see what a great woman she was. They have an expectation that the resurrection power of Jesus is at work, and possibly that that resurrection power will be brought even upon death. The, the very thing that seems often to be beyond the power of the resurrection, beyond hope, even death itself. And Peter comes, he goes up to the upper room. They're all showing him the tunics and the garments that she made while she was with them. He puts them out, uh, kneels down, he prays to the Lord, and he turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, arise. It's resurrection language. The resurrection of Jesus is at work, pushing back against the curse. Here, the ultimate effect of the curse of sin, death itself. Jesus' resurrection has power even over death. They come back in and notice what Luke tells us in verse 41. He calls the saints and the widows to come back in. Saints here just being Christians, calls them back in and he presents her alive. It's the same way that Luke describes what Jesus does in the beginning of Acts when he gathers all of his disciples and he presents himself alive from the dead. It's the same exact way of talking. Luke is telling us Peter's not just on a physician's journey healing people who are sick. 
He is on a proclamation journey, proclaiming and demonstrating the resurrection power of Jesus, pushing back against the curse of sin. In a little bit, we'll sing Joy to the World uh, at the end of the service, which you may think, wait, it's not December yet. What are we doing? That, uh, That song was really looking forward to the return of Christ, not just looking back at his first coming, although it kind of does both. But uh, in that that hymn, there's a line that talks about how uh, Jesus comes to make uh, his blessings known as far as the curse is found. And when we sing that, part of what we're saying is Jesus resurrected from the dead has begun to reverse the curse of sin and its effects. And we see that in this story of Aeneas, a broken man healed, and Tabitha, a dead woman raised from the dead by the power of the resurrection of Jesus. He is bringing that to bear in these two lives. What does that mean for us? I'm skipping the second point because we kind of rolled it into the first, but the third point Jesus calls us to live by faith and to participate in the ongoing reversal of sin's curse in the world and in our lives. Now, I don't mean to um, say this clearly. I don't don't mean to over-spiritualize a story of healing like this. We should say very clearly, Peter really healed Aeneas. He, He really... Uh, Jesus, rather, really healed Aeneas through Peter, really healed his body. He really got up and his legs were healed by supernatural power. Jesus still does those things today. Uh, We we don't need to live in a box where we kind of bind what God is able to do to our bodies in terms of healing and so forth. We certainly pray for those things. So I don't want to over-spiritualize that and say, that's not something we should focus on. It's certainly something we should pray for and, and look, look for God to do according to his will. But I do think it's important to remember uh, that the main point even of these passages where Jesus uh, heals somebody physically, the main point of those passages is not the healing itself. It's not presented to us as if that is supposed to be the ongoing normal ministry of the church. And one of the ways we see that is in the fact that In every sermon in the book of Acts, you go read every sermon in the book of Acts. What's the focus of those sermons, even when they're joined with acts of healing and miraculous deeds? Focus of those sermons is never the healing. The healing is always a sign. It's always pointing to something more significant. It's always pointing primarily in the sermons to the fact that Jesus died for sins and that he rose again from the dead as God's, the Father's seal of approval on Jesus' redemptive work, that there is really, truly salvation in Jesus through his death and resurrection, that, and that the power that's being brought to bear to heal people is proof that Jesus is the one who is able to save. So while we don't over-spiritualize these things, certainly God cares for our bodies, and we ought to pray with that in view. It's important not to miss the main point. Or you might ask it this way, how is Jesus primarily at work in your life today, bringing the power of his resurrection to bear? How is he primarily at work in you today, bringing the power of his resurrection to bear upon your life? He does that by showing you that like Aeneas, you are broken by sin. 
and that you are in need of healing and that he is the one by his death and resurrection who heals all who come to him, forgiving our sins, renewing us through repentance, confession of sin, and seeking to walk by faith. Jesus is at work bringing the power of his resurrection to bear in our lives today by reminding us that we live in a world broken by sin and that we ourselves are broken by sin. And therefore, in many ways, there's parts of us that are still dead that need to be made alive. And that by his resurrection power, Jesus is at work making us alive again and again and again. The Bible is full of this imagery of death and life, of death and resurrection as the pattern for our lives in Christ. Just think for a moment about the parable of the prodigal son. It's in three parables kind of all together. There's a sheep that's lost, strays from the 99, and the shepherd goes and finds the sheep, comes back rejoicing. What was lost has now been found. There's a woman who loses one coin of 10, and she searches the whole house, turns it upside down. She finds it, and she rejoices because what was lost was found. And then there's one son of two sons who leaves, abandons his father, takes the inheritance that would come to him upon his father's death before the father dies, wasted in a foreign land, comes to the end of, his, uh, the end of himself and finally comes to his senses and repents and comes back to his father's house thinking, maybe I can be like a servant in my father's house. Maybe he'll take me back on those terms because I'm not worthy to be called a son anymore. The father sees him from a distance, runs to the son, embraces him because what was lost was now found. And then the older brother, who's been there the whole time doing all the things right, he gets mad about it. And the father says, we had to rejoice because your, son, your brother was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. Listen, what Jesus has done, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've been brought into fellowship with Jesus through faith, what he has done in your life is no less than brought you out of death, spiritual death, and into what Jesus calls life abundant. It happens at conversion, and you come to Christ for the first time, and then the good news is it keeps happening. You're not converted over and over again, but he keeps bringing you to life. He keeps renewing your life as you put sin to death and live for God. As you present your life, your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, acceptable to him, pleasing to him as an act of spiritual, reasonable worship. Your life is meant to be an ongoing cycle and pattern of dying to yourself, dying to your sin and living for God. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. I mean, all that's good news, but here's some more good news. It's not up to your strength. You know, Tabitha died. She was, she was dead. They prepared her body for burial. They put her in an upper room to wait. She was really dead. There wasn't anything she could do about it. But Jesus' resurrection power could. And some of us may feel similarly about our own lives, about things that we struggle with, about sin and sin struggles that just don't seem to go away. I just feel like I, I take two steps forward and 
four steps back. I just can't keep my head above water. This thing that I hate, I keep doing. I know what the right thing is, but I don't do that. And there's this internal struggle, and we feel like we are often just in a losing battle. Paul felt like that. Read Romans 7. He describes it in those terms. Yet the good news is that Jesus holds us fast. He doesn't let us go. And he, over time, continually opens our eyes and helps us to see sin for what it is and promises to hold on to us through that struggle so that we can repent. And he brings his living resurrection power to work in our lives, changing us from the inside out. Some, some of you may be dealing with things that you've dealt with your entire life and you feel like there's no change. There's nothing, nothing that can be done. And Jesus says otherwise. Jesus says that he is able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think by the power of his resurrection. The same power by which the Father raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you to raise you from the dead and to make you more and more like Christ. Let me make just some final points of application here. Uh, for those who may not, may not be followers of Jesus, who may not believe these things and haven't come to a point of trusting in Christ for salvation, uh, you need to see that Jesus has brought his kingdom through his sin-conquering death and resurrection, and that he is now at work welcoming into his kingdom all those who know that they are broken by sin and need his grace, those who recognize that they are dead apart from him and need to be made alive. So my question to you, if you've not yet believed these things and embraced them for yourself, is what are you doing with your brokenness? What are you doing with the areas of life that are clearly impacted by sin? Are you trying to fix them for yourselves when Jesus has offered you the ultimate and the only solution through his death and resurrection? He is the Savior who brings good news of life out of death and calls us to come to him. Maybe you're beginning to see that your sin is real and you're not sure what to do with it. And the call of the gospel is take it to Jesus. Come to Christ with your sin and believe that he died for it, that he took it upon himself at his cross and rose again from the dead and offers you new life in him, life characterized by rising again. If that's you and you know that you need Jesus, and you know that he is for you, come to him and maybe talk to somebody here about coming to Jesus. For believers, let me give you two final points of application uh, as, we, as we close. One regarding witness. Uh, well, we've already talked about our walk with the Lord, but let me just make one point of application regarding our witness. I think sometimes as, as believers, we find it difficult uh, in certain cases to, and some of you do, some of you don't, we, we sometimes find it difficult to know how to talk about Jesus, know how to talk about our faith with other people or talk about how... Jesus has worked in our lives and what that means and to share our faith with Christ. I want you to take encouragement uh, from this passage that sometimes the most effective thing you can do in witness to Christ is to die and then to live again, to daily put your sin upon the cross, to daily die to yourself and to live for God and let other people see 
Jesus at work in you. Sometimes that's the most effective mode of witness, to live for Christ. People saw that Aeneas was bedridden and then healed, and they turned to the Lord. They called upon the Lord. People saw that Tabitha was dead and raised, and they believed in the Lord. Are people seeing you die to your sin and live to Jesus, live to God, live for him? If so, that can be a powerful way to bear witness to him and to talk about what Christ has done in your life. And may we as well believe that there is no area of our lives that is off limits, that is too powerful, too far gone, too corrupt for the resurrection power of Jesus to be at work, changing us and making us new. May we present ourselves alive to him. Would you pray with me?